Hello, welcome and bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Amish Inquisition yet again. Episode 158 on Sunday the 8th of November. I'm Amish Phil. I'm Amish Ben. (laughs) Slick. That was really slick. (laughs) 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 Fucking hell. Right. (laughs) Tonight's guest... (laughs) What, is it episode 158? I don't know. Yeah, yep. anyway. Tonight's guest is Marek Zimslovsky. Uh, Marek is an entrepreneur and author of Chasing Black Unicorns, How Building the Amazon of Africa Put Me on Interpol's Most Wanted List. You can go to MarekZimslovsky.com to find out more, and there'll be a link in the description. How you doing, Marek? Hi, everyone. Marek here. Not an Amish. Not yet, I guess. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Not too late to convert you. Mm. Oh, Amish Marek's got quite a nice ring to it. It does, yeah, it does. I, Hollywood's always making cool movies about uh, about this context. I've recently watched something with Harrison Ford, I guess. Um, so there's a really, really positive uh, always connotation. I don't know how, how real, but positive. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we, we I think we made contact on LinkedIn, and um, that's where I heard about your book. Um, yeah, I mean, the first obvious question is, how does building the Amazon of Africa get you on Interpol's most wanted list? Right. <laughs> yeah, crazy story, huh? Um, just a bit, yeah. You realize that you just couldn't make this shit up even if you wanted to. Um, so there are actually two stories into one uh, with my book. I have um, I have spent last almost 10 years, I mean, nine uh, and a couple of months uh, in sub-Saharan Africa uh, where I've moved. Uh, and working for an investment fund that at that time wanted to to build a big e-commerce group on that continent, and uh, I was working there for a couple of years. Uh, the, the, it was one of the most exciting uh, adventure of my life because we started from scratch. I was one of the early employees, um, and, and we ended up going on New York Stock Exchange and doing an IPO. Um, wow. So, an extremely uh, great adventure. But at the same time, when I left the company and started doing some investments open other companies. I was, I was living in Nigeria back then. Um, I got myself into some trouble because unfortunately when you run businesses in, I would say to you, for lack of a better word, exotic economies, young economies, there's still a lot of corruption and, and business is simply ruthless. And sometimes you end up doing business with not the people that you want. And in my particular case, it was just an attempt to take over the company. And there are many ways to try to take over a company, many civilized ways, which are still ruthless, but civilized <laughs> within the business borders, or you simply bribe the police to arrest you. And, uh, and you have a, you have two options. You're either going to stay in jail for a couple of months because everyone will forget about you. <laughs> There's going to be a fake arrest warrant. Are you going to sign the papers? Um, and then they're going to release you simply because they're paid. And, and that's what happened to me. And uh, because I was extremely lucky, I was able to, 
fight this case legally. Uh, it took me almost three years. I've collected a lot of evidence. It was a lot of Hollywood stories uh, there. I would go for meetings with microphones under my shirt, try to get those people that were representing the other side admit who they bribed and why <laughs> and how much I have to pay. Um, and, uh, and at some point, I realized when the whole case got won and so on, uh, I realized um, that might be a good book because on one side, uh, there was so much business insights I wanted to share. Uh, speaking of building online businesses in, in sub-Saharan Africa, which is such a niche. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I was able to throw some uh, crazy stories, like including being on Interpol most wanted list. And I, I can tell you that connection between Nigeria and Interpol in, 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 in a second, because that kind of made the book a little bit more interesting. Because I, if I was writing about how to build a strate- uh, marketing strategy for an online travel agency or, a, or an e-commerce uh, for 400, 400 pages, he would just probably fall asleep. Um, but when I divided the book into a um, couple crazy stories, uh, I was able to make you laugh, maybe got you scared as a reader. And then when I have your attention, put, push some, uh, some knowledge into you. And mm-hmm. I kind of copied this from stand-up comedians because they essentially make you laugh, but then at some point they want to have they want to tell you something interesting, and so I kind of copied that 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 approach in my book. Right. So, what? What? How old were you when you first went to Africa? Then. So that was 2012, uh, and I'm born 86. So I was 26. <laughs> I mean, it's a hell of an adventure for a, you know a relatively young young man. Yeah. Uh, I did not know what I'm doing. Absolutely. <laughs> like everything makes sense now from hindsight. It's like, Oh my God, this guy made such a strategic good decision. Like he planned all his investments so properly. No, I was, I was this typical Polish startupper entrepreneur wannabe. I've, I've started my so-called career in financial markets in Poland. That's how I made my first big money right. uh, in the early 2000s. I dropped out of university to sell insurance and investments and stocks, just like Wolf of Wall Street. We just didn't sell anything illegal, but the company was the same one, like uh, brainwashing and making you spend money on parties. So we just work more. And then 2008 came and we've lost all our money and we even got ourselves into debts. Uh, I ended up being a bartender, but my friend hired me to his small company. He was building a fintech uh, application. And he told me, I'm not going to pay you much, but I'm going to give you some shares. And maybe uh, if I sell the company, that's the vision he sold me. Um, you're going to be able to pay your debts that you got yourself into when you were working in the finance sector. And just by pure accident, because I had nothing to do with it. I was just like an analyst for him and helping him with the website. He sold this company after two years. And the money he promised me from the shares allowed me to pay the debts from my financial markets adventures. And then I was like, wow, I think I, I'm in love in this sector because it just saved my life. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, then I opened a couple of startups in Poland, a couple of crazy ones as well, including a, a marketplace, an online marketplace for funeral services. And, uh, <laughs> yeah it's 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 like an on, it's like an online travel business it's just the travel is one way yeah how does uh, whoa, whoa, whoa how does that work <laughs> I, I mean is so, it like ebay is it the highest bidder gets the coffin or what how's it work i would say i would say more like booking.com so or or even um expedia like you're in a need a funeral essentially is an event yeah uh and the, the, the dead guy is not the client. The, the, the client is the family. And usually it's, uh, it's someone from the family that is most emotionally stable that knows how to handle the stuff. 
and there's a quick decision that needs to be made because you know one plans for someone to die. Yeah? So um, I've noticed that there's this trend that the typical client was around 35, 40 years old in the family, the guy that was always chosen to organize everything. And people being that age in the early 2000s uh, were slowly shifting from the first generation of, uh, of internet-heavy users were entering that age. So these guys were not looking for a funeral home in the newspaper or anymore or asking the priest or the doctor. They would just go to their smartphone. So there was this big demand growing in the online space. And to buy a lead, to buy a CPC or to buy an ad for this particular sector in Poland was super cheap because no one else was doing this. Right. So I ended up being building a website that was getting a lot of online traffic because I knew how to do it. And of course, I didn't have my own funeral home. So I would go to every major city in Poland and I would talk to the funeral guys. I'm going to give you a client uh, unless you're going to pay me a commission. So I took the booking.com business model. And uh, long story short, I met those guys from Rocket Internet, a big investment fund. And, and at that time, they they wanted to enter uh, e-commerce in, in online travel in Africa. They were already very successful in Latin America, in Asia. They were not planning to go to US because Amazon was there. They were not planning to go to China because Alibaba was there. They wanted to go to Africa. And at that time, I thought that I'm such a genius guy that they want to hire me. But the truth of the matter was that none of sane guys from Germany or France at that time wanted to go for such a small salary, just hoping they're going to get some shares. Uh, no, no one wanted to move to Nigeria. And and I didn't care. I had nothing to lose. And I, I, I wanted to, to get like an adventure. I really wanted to work for them. Um, and I also... I also ex already experienced that I actually made money by someone offering me shares in that fintech application I told you about. So when they told me, uh, we're going to pay you almost nothing, but we're going to give you shares if you deliver the results, uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm in for it. So that's what, what really worked for me well. It's a great way to motivate someone as well, isn't it? If you're going out there to set it up. Mm. I think it's one of the best ways to do it, really, when you when you hire employees, because you, you immediately you see who's here from the long game. Yeah, if someone wants to have a higher salary, doesn't care about the shares, you know what his motivations are. Um, and and that investment fund I was working for, Rocket Internet, they they were really strange because usually the way investment funds work is that there's an entrepreneur with an idea or a, or a small company and he wants to grow it, so he goes to the fund to get more money and they run it. Here, the, there was the other way around. The investment fund was starting the companies. They had the idea. They had a lot of processes that they could take advantage of, but they were needing those founders that would kind of, just like a parent, adopt the idea, adopt the concept for the business and really fell in love with it. And, and, and I, I was one of those. Uh, and if you, if, you are, if you get shares instead of a high salary, you need to be in love long-term with this business. Otherwise, first problems come, you're just going to pack Sweet yeah. jobs. Go and look for another job, yeah. So when you got sent to um, Africa, what was your kind of, what was it you started to do? What was the first thing you had to do when you were out there? Yeah, so, I mean, when they told me, first, first the plan was to go to Egypt. And I was an African ignorant, like, that didn't know much <laughs> about Africa. We, we don't learn a lot of, about Africa in schools, right? They tell yeah. us that we, we colonized this region some time ago, and it was shit. Uh, so we didn't want to talk about this. Then we decolonized and we gave them independence, but we did it even in a worse way. So now it's even bigger shit. So let's not talk about it. That's usually the, the, the history lesson in school. Yeah. So first it was supposed to be Egypt. So I figured, oh, pyramids and nice <laughs> kite surfing spots. I'm, I think I'm going to be good. But then a couple weeks later, 
uh, I already signed the contract on everything. They told us, uh, no, we're going to start with Nigeria because it's the biggest, biggest market. <laughs> and then I just Googled Nigeria and all you can read about is Boko Haram, which is like even worse than ISIS. And, uh, and obviously the Nigerian so-called scams. So unfortunately, Nigeria doesn't have the best PR. Uh, but I figured, ah, what the heck, um, I have nothing to lose. But, so that was my first impression. From the business perspective, what we were supposed to do uh, so there was there was there was a couple of companies we were launching, and, and I was responsible for the online travel one. After some time, we all combined them into one big e-commerce group that is now on the stock exchange. But back then, I was responsible for the online travel uh, department, and we were building the software from Portugal, where our software house was. So essentially, what you had to figure out in Nigeria first, because that was our first country. Then we opened Kenya, Cameroon, Ghana, many other countries, but we started in Nigeria. Uh, the first thing is that you have to figure out the inventory, the supply, which is just like what I did with funeral homes back then in Poland. I have to fi- figure out a way to go from hotel to hotel in Nigeria. First of all, find those hotels because there was no Google Maps that would tell you these are 3,000 hotels in Lagos. Mm. <laughs> You'd have to find them by, by paying taxi drivers to drive you around. Then you would have to uh, go to a hotel manager and explain to him that there's this thing called the internet because in 2012 it wasn't that obvious. Uh, only 10% of hotels back then had Wi-Fi. Maybe 30% had an email address. Uh, you had to figure out, you had to tell them that, you know, there's this new channel that will be more important than people coming to you from the airport. And I want to send you clients from the uh, from the internet. You just have to pay me. And, and then once you figure out how to do it, then you're going to build sales teams. And uh, and in three years, we were able to sign up 25,000 hotels like this in, in whole sub-Saharan African region. Obviously, we've built huge sales teams. Uh, but once you build demand, you have to build it very quickly because you promise the hotels that you're going to start sending them clients and they will get impatient very fast. So as soon as you figure out how to build supply, you have to start quickly building demand. So now figure out how it is to make clients find your website and then book online the hotel and not be afraid to book online. And that was also a wild right because uh, very... Early, we kind of bought all the traffic we could on Google. There was just no more searches. No one was looking for Google uh, on Google for hotels. We, we we had to switch to offline. So most of our marketing was actually offline marketing, although we were an online company. So we would uh, buy uh, rent sales booths at airports and bus stations. Um, our people would just approach directly people waiting in the line to enter a bus or, or buy a flight ticket and asking them if they already booked a hotel um, and showing them how to do it with an iPad um, and, and hoping that the next time they will, they will book it on, on, the, on their own. Uh, also, the crazy, many, many crazy lessons in terms of how to do uh, online marketing in an offline world. Uh, fun fact uh, even a year ago uh, Google in Nigeria was still uh, buying ads in TV and on street billboards with their more product which is called Google search wow so a year ago Google was still educating uh, that there's this thing called google.com and you can go and, and search for stuff so um, just because there's a lot of people and just because they're online doesn't mean they can be your client because first of all, they have to have the money and, and, and second of all, they need to be educated. So there are things we take for granted probably when you open and build another app for the UK market. Yeah, mm, Definitely. So um, are you, were you mainly trying to get travelers within Africa to go to your hotels or were you trying to get people from Europe and America and everyone else? 
Yeah, we were mainly focusing on the uh, intra-African intra uh, uh, traveler because it was very hard to compete for the European traveler coming to uh, Africa because he, he would already know Booking.com or Expedia, right. and if he's going to a new country, he want he wants to trust a big brand. He's gonna book he's gonna book Radisson on Booking.com because he, he wants to trust the brand. For a Nigerian, he my my brand was as new as Booking.com for him, so there wasn't even playing field uh and actually when you look at budgets of uh, revenue uh, of, of a typical hotel in sub-saharan africa maybe besides south africa and east africa when there's a lot of foreign tourists uh besides that across the board 70 to 80 percent of all the revenue from hotels is actually coming from a local client right. a business uh, destinations business uh, travel and also because it's so tough to live in a big city in africa like lagos or, or nairobi the, the power cut runs out very fast more in Lagos than in Nairobi. And Nairobi is better in that sense. Um, not everyone has AC, not everyone has running water. It's a much more common thing to book a hotel for a weekend in the same city you live in, just to take your family and enjoy the swimming pool, enjoy the restaurant because and you enjoy know, a nice room. Because yeah. you know the electricity supply is secure. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. So it's like a city breaks. Uh, yeah. Fun fact, it's also very popular in South, South Korea. Uh, so it's not only typical for, uh, I would say, underdeveloped regions you know, or, or regions with uh, with infrastructure challenges. So was there anybody else actually doing this then when you went out there? Was there any competitors of you know, <coughs> Africa trying to do it? There were many local startups mm. uh, who were doing the same because obviously there were a lot of smart guys seeing what the trends are. Uh, they were like not as well funded as we were, but many times they were the biggest competition. We were, they were bigger competition for us than Booking.com or Expedia. Uh, because Booking.com or Expedia, they might have had more money, but we were on the ground. So we knew how to build a business. But then again, just like I was able to compete with Booking.com, this behemoth, this monster, in the same way, those small startups, which were basically bootstrapping, many times were smarter than us in, in certain um, strategies uh, because they knew how to spend money much smarter because they were the locals. Uh, mm-hmm. I ah. always use this uh, metaphor of, uh, I mean, imagine that the, the, your market is is like this highway that is it's like in the middle of a traffic jam. Like no one is moving. Yeah, there's, there's five lanes this way, five lanes that way, and everyone is stopped. There are only two ways to get through the, the, the traffic jam. You either rent a police car and in Nigeria, police is just offering the services. You can just rent a police guy to drive with you for a day. Uh, that's another topic. And they would just drive in front of you and just shout at the people in front of you too so they make way for you, you know, or scare them with a Kalashnikov. It's an expensive way. It's actually not that fast because you have to force yourself, but you're going to get somewhere. But that's the, like the, that's the rich man way. <laughs> or you can just hire one of those crazy, in Lagos you call them uh, Okada, uh, in Nairobi, you call them Boda, uh, Boda, 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 uh, which is those crazy guys on those small bikes. And they will just, you just jump on the back seat and they will take you in between those cars. It's going to be the scariest as shit adventure, but this is the fastest way. So those local startups are those Okada who don't have the budget, but they know their way around. Uh, and we, 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 are, we are growing the, the Richmond way. Big investment fund was, were supporting us, but also huge costs related to corporate governance, um, big structures, decisions making being done longer and so on and so on. Wow. Okay. 
Um, you talked about sort of the your competitors having more local knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose were you sort of a bit maybe naive in how it works when you when you first went there and I'm thinking about greasing the wheels and and backhanders and having to pay people off is because you mentioned about corruption being a, a big issue there uh, yeah um so in the beginning so there are like two there's there's corruption and there's really stupid purchasing decisions yeah and and and, and like falling for that white man tax <laughs> at some point I remember my 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 teammates told me like, okay, we're going to the store to buy some office furniture, but you're not going with us because every time they see a white guy, like they're adding a zero to all the prices. <laughs> so so uh, many times you would just had to pay twice just because we're uh, a foreign company, and and that's it happens to you when you go to a market and you want to buy a dress or <laughs> and you want to take it home, uh, and it also happens on a business in a, on a business level, um, and also. Um, also, uh, employing people like uh, we were we were paying way more to the people because we had additional taxes and not probably our local competition was not paying all the taxes they were supposed to because uh, now no one was checking them that well. Uh, we were not able to offer chairs to all our employees. Only the senior management was able to get it. But when you're a small smaller startup, you can just give some chairs to all of your employees because it's it's your company that you just you just started. Um, but when you're asking about corruption, I would say that 2012 to 2018, uh, it wasn't that bad. 2016, maybe 17, because we were this small online companies that no one cared about. I mean, uh, it's still nothing in comparison in comparison to how big the oil business is, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. In, in Nigeria, so none of those bad guys from the government would, would care about you. But then at some point, Uber came which is like 2016, if I'm correct. I don't remember now. And, and, and we were big enough. We were starting to buy ads in TV as well. And we were starting to buy ads on street billboards. So we're building brand awareness. And you're yeah. building brand awareness among your clients and also among some bad, bad guys. And that's where the government and different type of institutions started to pay way more interest to what we were doing. And it had to... It had two really levels, two angles to it. One is that you would get increased number of so-called controls, like that will always before Christmas control, like how many foreigners are working here? Is it, does everyone have a, has a work permit? Um, we would be, once our warehouse would be uh, totally like arrested by the police, like we couldn't work in the warehouse anymore. We couldn't send orders anymore because apparently someone was, the, the owner of the warehouse that we rented the warehouse from was owning someone money. And the police came to, Take, the, take all our uh, inventory to cover the debts because they, they didn't see the difference between the owner of the, of the warehouse owning money and us, a company that rents the warehouse. Obviously, we realized later it was, uh, it was learned that it was a competition just sending the police uh, to, all right. to get us. Yeah. And, and also, the governments were, were coming up with crazier and crazier ways to, to charge us in different ways. Uh, I don't recall any specific case right now, uh, but there's one uh, from, from my times, uh, but there's one like from a couple of months ago where Nigerian government wanted Uber to pay 10% of every right value. So Uber, so government wanted Uber to pay to the government more 
then the Uber it's himself or itself is making money <laughs> on the on the right, right? Because Uber works on the margin. Very as well. small margin. The yeah. rest goes to the driver. So uh, bloggers in Uganda have to now register in order to blog and pay some fee, you know, <laughs> because it, it, it's it's censorship, but also it's uh, getting money. Um, and, and and you can like you can come up with more, more and more. Uh, so at some point there was this swift a switch you could see the change in the way governments were treating technology companies because they realized okay they're becoming big enough they're changing how people operate they're changing how people in the city live because uber changes everything how you live e-commerce changes food delivery changes everything and then they also realized there's there's more and more foreign money behind it mm. which means let's let's tax them <laughs> yeah so you was so, so for the first sort of four or five years you were sort of flying under the radar uh, exactly but yeah. once you started um trying to build your brand awareness and invested in tv advertising billboards all of a sudden people's ears start pricking up and saying whoa who are these guys and where are all the where's all their money coming from correct we uh, we might need to think of a new tax yeah, a lot of it sounds um kind of frustrating but was there anything i suppose that you that was particularly sinister or scary that happened whilst you were there uh, so, hmm, there was really nothing scary that happened to me. I actually, you know, my book puts attention to Nigeria, to what happened to me, because, you know, Interpol is a strong word, yeah? yeah? But I actually, when you read my book and, and my TED Talks, you watch my TED Talks and so on, you actually realize that I consider myself very lucky and I still always promote doing business in Nigeria because statistically, I was extremely lucky. I mean, I got myself into deep shit, forgive me my French, and it was really deep, like I almost I almost died, right? But it was only once. It was heavy, but it was only once. And still, I would still consider myself lucky. So let me quickly tell you what, like, what happened in my case, is that um, usually, so I, I've, I've left the, the, the company we've built, the, the big e-commerce group was in the end called Jumia. I left uh, a couple months before it, it did the IPO. Uh, and then I decided, uh, okay, let me uh, now stay in Nigeria, maybe do a little bit of investments. Uh, I couldn't sell them. I couldn't sell the stocks because I had a lockup. So it's not like I made money immediately or, or anything like that. But I was able to do some investments. I opened another company. And, and usually they, people tell you, if you're a foreigner and in an exotic country, you want to open a business with someone that protects you from the bad guys, right? Like, like a godfather. And, uh, and it was like a stereotype that I felt fell for uh, because there was no big company behind me anymore. When I was working with Rocket, the investment fund, if something happened, I knew that I had a big team of lawyers always to support me and, and, and a lot of big money. Uh, mm. Here I'm on my own. I can, I think I know the market better. I have connections, uh, but I'm, I'm on my own. Um, so I decided to open this business and invite a, a, a local entrepreneur. He, he is like Indian slash Nigerian. When you look at the nationalities uh, to be, like a chairman of the board. And if something goes wrong, if I got the attention that I don't want, if you know what I mean, from the government, that he will be able to navigate this. And in those stories, when everyone tells you find a godfather to protect you, <laughs> no one tells you that sometimes you have to have someone to protect you from the godfather. <laughs> <laughs> and what really happened in, uh, in my case, and I want to make a distinction between what led to the conflict and then what happened afterwards. I was this cocky CEO that I thought I can do everything. I didn't want to listen to any advice and so on and so on. And there was a growing conflict inside the company about 
what to do next with the company. Like, shall we get more money, get more investments, acquire another company, or shall we start cutting costs to become profitable faster? Typical conflicts within a, within a business, right? Is this, is this when you're still at Rocket or after you'd left then? And that, gone that's on my new your company own. that we launched. Hotel new company, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and then, then then he was like my uh, my my chairman. He was like the yeah. the, the person that like the, the older advisor that I obviously didn't take advice from, and that was the cocky side of me. And um, we used to be very good friends. And the, the worst thing is that when friends start to fight in business, because we know too much about each other, we can bring out those bad things about our personal life to to piss you off basically in a business conversation. It's like the lowest point you can have, you can you can make. And me being this cocky guy, I. I basically, I pissed him off. Uh, I really pissed him off by telling him in front of his people to, to shut up and not tell me how to run my company. Because in the end, it was my company, right? I've put most of the money. He was just a symbolic investor. He just got like less than five, 15%. And, uh, and that's, where I, that, that's where I crossed the line. And him being the, the ruthless businessman doing business for 30 years in Nigeria he decided not to hold any breaks in terms of showing me who's the boss here. <laughs> and out of the portfolio of different business tactics that you can have in order to get your way, bribing the police is something that he didn't stop himself from. And that's where I, where he escalated the conflict. That's where he turned this business conflict where, where I, I blame myself for being a cocky guy and being maybe, you're just being not nice, you know, and being an asshole in a conversation, but not doing anything wrong. He escalated this into bribing the police to take the company from me because he's going to teach me a lesson and, uh, and show who's the alpha male in this business. Right. And, um, and I remember I was, I was in Poland because it was Christmas. Uh, we came with my girlfriend, my girlfriend is Dominican. Uh, we came for Christmas to meet my family. Uh, and then in January I was flying back, uh, and, uh, she was flying back to DR. I stopped at the airport. Uh, after like, you know, waiting for 10 minutes until they check my passport, the lady at the counter was becoming significantly pale. <laughs> she didn't know what to do <laughs> until some immigration officers came to me and they said that I'm allegedly wanted by Nigeria for high scale financial fraud. And there's a arrest warrant and there's a potential case for 21 years to, to spend in Nigerian jail. <laughs> uh, it, it was funny thing that you have to, you have to steal allegedly, you have to steal a certain amount of money. I think it's like two hundred thousand dollars, and if you if you steal not more than two hundred thousand dollars, you can go to jail for max seven years or something like that. But if you steal two thousand and five thousand dollars, two hundred five thousand dollars, then you go to twenty one years in jail. Like there's this like a big change. Wow. And of course, I allegedly stole the minimum amount to go for twenty one years. <laughs> uh, and um, long story short, there was a phone call saying. Uh, no, we, we, we kind of know what happened to you. Uh, we're here to help you. Uh, I know what about your problems in Nigeria with your business partner and so on and so on. Basically, maybe you should get out of the company. I'm going to help you sell the shares. And, uh, and then I'm going to help you undo with everything. And it was all already, I was collecting the evidence. I was recording on the phone, the phone calls and et cetera. And at some point I said, no, you can go fuck yourself. I will never sell the company. I'm going to, I'm going to take you to court. Um, then the offer changed from sell the company for nothing to just pay us money. Cause we're going to have to pay those people to take, to undo your case. More than two years. Um, in the end, uh, we took Nigerian police to court, in Nigerian federal court. Uh, we then also appealed in Interpol HQ, 
in France, uh, because Interpol is this like a superior institution that connects all the police uh, uh, around the world. And uh, and then I also had to defend myself in the Polish court because Nigerian government really tried to uh, extradite me uh, to Nigeria. So uh, just going right back to the beginning, then, and when you uh, uh, after one of the three cases, yeah. Sorry, I got away with the story. It's all right. It just it, there's just it a just... bit of stuttering on with the internet, but I think it's rectified now. What were you going to say? Yeah, sorry. No, sorry. I was yeah. I didn't realize you uh, you were you hadn't finished. But I was just going to say, um, just going right to the beginning, when the woman yeah. was kind of at the airport and said, looking at your passport and going, "Hang on a minute, you're on the the most wanted list." <laughs> mm-hmm. What happened at that point? Well, you were actually arrested at that point then, or did somebody call you? Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, actually, I did you not just like shit jump, your pants jump over that story. So. <laughs> Yes, my first, <laughs> first, my first two seconds were like what, and then it was like oh, I think I know what this is about. But you, you're you're entering this yeah. this like a shock mode. Yeah. like I didn't feel anything. Right. They actually stopped me at the airport, and then they took me to uh, to, to jail. I had to spend the night in jail. Right. Okay. And the, the the guy that was taking care of me, they were not clear about the legality of this thing. They confused an European arrest warrant when there's no like judge involved, they just immediately send you to the country that wants you, wants you because of European Union like regulations, okay. which is different than Nigeria. Yeah. So he thought they're just going to send me to Nigeria. So when he took me to the cell, he said, well, I guess we're looking for a flight to send you to Nigeria. Good night. <laughs> and, he came to the door. and I shit my pants. I mean, I, I went through uh, four stages of grief in one night because first it's like, Okay, this is a joke. Is there a hidden camera? Is someone pulling a, a trick on me? It's a bad joke, guys. Okay, turn on the lights. Uh, I'm, I'm okay. It's, it was funny while it lasted. <laughs> then you enter extreme rage. It's like I'm literally going to suffocate with my bare hands everyone that has done this to me. I'm going to seek revenge. It's like the, the biggest rage I've ever experienced. And then you enter depression mode. It's like, oh my God, my life is about to end. I'm done. I'm done. There's nothing I can do. And then you start crying. You, I start losing breath. I would be, you know, running around in circles. I would try to meditate, breathe, breathe. I was praying to all the gods I could ever think of, right? Um, and then at some point, once you just leave, release all that emotion, you start calming yourself down, down. And that's when the constructive thinking starts. So I was basically planning. Okay, what's the worst possible thing that can happen tomorrow 6 a.m. in the morning when they come to pick me up. Who should I call? Who should I ask to talk to? Who do I know? Um, what's the best possible outcome? And I was playing this in my head, all those scenarios for hours. And, and after um, you, reach, you reach a point when you realize, okay, I just I can't come up with any new shit anymore. And that's where you get some, some internal peace because you did everything you could right now. You're ready for everything. You, you're, you've already played the worst possible scenario. You've played in your head the best possible scenario. And that's how you reach peace. And it was also a great lesson for me to spend that night there in terms of you know mental character and, and self-motivation and so on and so on. And what happened to me next morning is that I was the luckiest motherfucker on earth <laughs> is because um, I was stopped in Poland uh, yeah. because I was leaving... I landed in Poland, I think, on the 20-something. The, basically, the, the Interpol arrest warrant, the, the, the red notice, arrived in the system like two days after I arrived in Poland. So I could be stopped in Spain. I could be stopped in Dominican Republic. Then I would be screwed 
because they wouldn't care about me. But because I was stopped in Poland, uh, uh, when I was leaving Poland, Polish Poland by by definition doesn't want to send Polish citizens just like that. So Poland's the Polish public attorney said, "Well, we have to send it to a judge, and the judge will decide whether we're going to send it to Nigeria or not." And that gave me a chance to defend mm-hmm. myself. They took my passport. They said, "You're not going out anywhere." <laughs> uh, but I was able to be uh, at my parents' home because I didn't live in Poland. I went to my mom's home. I was able to be online, and I was able to make phone calls, hire lawyers, and and yeah. and still have some money to defend myself. If it wasn't for the fact that they they bureaucracy, they wanted to get that arrest warrant probably in the system before I arrived in Poland, but it was just a matter of days, and and that saved me. Well, if yeah. you'd have been in any other country, you think you would have been immediately extradited to Nigeria. Yeah, no country wants to have a problem. Like, why do we care about this foreigner? It's just a yeah. problem for us. I mean, who, where are we sending him? So they would be sending me either to Poland or to Nigeria. And then depends on which country has a better relationship. Right. With, yeah. I mean, it's not that obvious anymore. Like, Poland doesn't have the best foreign affairs lately. Uh, so I would be in South Africa. I would be in, in, in Thailand. I would be in Dominican Republic because I was really traveling a lot for because of the nature of the business that I'm doing. So... Um, if it wasn't for that particular thing that I decided to take my girlfriend to my family home uh, to meet my mother uh, for the first time, then this might have gone in a totally different way. I would probably be extradited to Nigeria and I would be taken to jail. And I'm telling you, I would sign any paper they would give me, uh, hoping that once I sign the paper and give them my company, they would they would release me. But you never know. You, uh, you would have had... No options, essentially, would you not? If you'd have been in extra, say you were extradited to Nigeria, um, yeah, with no support network around you, um, you you would have been properly screwed, probably. Or did or, or saying been, yeah. you would have had to give everything up for your freedom. And even if you, if I did that, I would still have no choice of being released because it's like. You know, like in all those Hollywood criminal movies, right? You take you take a hostage to, to the mafia warehouse, and they're saying, "Like, tell me the names of all your friends, or we're gonna kill you." Yeah? Once the guy t- tells them the name, why wouldn't they kill them anyway? Like, they don't need him anymore, right? <laughs> who's gonna Who's gonna take them for responsibility for you know prom- doing what they what you promised, right? Yeah. So you so you took the Nigerian police to court. Yeah, I mean. It sounds like crazy, but it, it's not so, me yeah. having the boss. It's my lawyer because I d- didn't step a foot while the case was while the case was happening. I didn't go to Nigeria, of course, because the risk was too high. <laughs> uh, even now, when I travel to Nigeria, I'm shitting my pants and I do do this very quietly. But sometimes I have to because of uh, of my business. Uh, my lawyers had big balls, and he advised <laughs> to do that. And uh, well. Maybe the Nigerian police is an extremely corrupt institution, and now you probably know what's happening on social media, like all those protests happening against police brutality. It's very, very bad. The government has just arrested the people behind the protests. It's like news from today. Uh, Nigeria police is a very corrupt institution, but Nigeria justice system and other other organizations, not necessarily so. And, and and I was able to take Nigerian police to federal court. So it, the case for me about me was happening in the local court. So I took them to the federal court in a totally different city when 
in Abuja in the capital where those guys from Lagos didn't have the connections. Ah, right. And in that court, uh, that court decided when they look at the evidence and the court said, guys, well, like, why is this arrest warrant even a thing? Like there's, there's no evidence. What is this for? Take it down. And, uh, and that saved me really because then it started the domino effect. Then I took this to uh, Interpol in France and Interpol said, um, Nigeria police should never put this into the Interpol system in the first place because Interpol is like Facebook, right? Anyone can post shit. But to take it down, if the person that posted it doesn't want to, you have to go to the HQ. Like, and good luck. It sometimes takes years to, to win those cases. Wow. Interpol admitted, okay, this is a case that should never have never been Interpol in the first case. So that, that was like a win. And then uh, the police, uh, the, the, the public attorney general in Poland also said the whole extradition case, I mean, there's no basis. They distracted down. So, so I'm the first and hopefully the last foreigner in the history of Nigeria to uh, take Nigerian police to court and win. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, police owes me ten thousand dollars in Nigeria, but I don't know how to get it back from them <laughs> for damages, so-called. Yeah. So go on, Matt. Now I was just going to say we talked a lot about sort of, um, I suppose, some of the negative things you experienced. What was the kind of um, positive things? Uh, this experience out there. This is important because we we don't want to sort of paint um, other countries in a in a bad light, and and that we know yeah. corruption happens everywhere. And yeah. Certain countries have a reputation for it, but it's not a reflection on the people. It's it's just the way things are in you know in some yeah. developing countries. Yeah, and this is what my book is really all about. Because I, I told you earlier that I fell for this stereotype, right? Mm. Take a local godfather to take care of you. And, right. and, and, take, and do business with someone you know. This guy was of Indian descent, um, Cambridge education, ed, educated, and, and then obviously he became ruthless for all those years while, and doing in Nigeria because apparently everyone is doing this. And the, the irony of the fact is that those guys that were on the other side was this Indian slash Nigerian guy, and his associate was American. <laughs> Again, Ethiopian descent, but American passport. But the people that helped me, you know, the people that helped me for this case, my no, my lawyer was Nigeria, the, the federal court, Nigerian justice system, that I kind of ruled in my favor, right? And then there were many people in, in the process that helped me um, when I was collecting evidence. I can't, I can't talk to you about everything for the safety of those people, but there were like so many Nigerians that helped me and I had so many friends. And and, and the net, net net result is that it's amazing. It's the, the bad shit always sticks longer and the bad stuff people pay attention to because it goes viral and so on. I made my case public, first of all, because I needed the media attention to put pressure on Interpol because otherwise I would be waiting five years for a verdict. But once it, be, once it landed in media, they made a decision in a month. <laughs> um, but two, I, I know that I have now the legitimacy to, to, to say it how it is, right? Because I had my share my fair share of cool stuff and my fair share of shitty stuff. And now I have the legitimacy to tell you if you're interested in emerging markets, like this is the biggest potential you could ever think of, please go and just watch because there's risk like everywhere, but the risk is totally worth the opportunity. Uh, and, and I, I, it gave me the legitimacy. I, I'm, I'm kind of consciously using the controversy and the, 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 the negative thing because it catches attention. But then right. hopefully once I catch your attention, I'm telling you the longer story, which you, I wouldn't be able to tell you if I didn't catch your attention in the first place. Yeah, no, I totally follow that. That makes sense. 
And, it, you know, it, it's alien to a lot of us who've grown up in the suburbs of some Western European country, you know, um, what it's like living in, in different places, especially sub-Saharan Africa. It's, uh, you know, the thing, the things I like to read about is the stories of the, the individual people and, and you you often come to the conclusion we're all just the same. We're all trying to make our way in the world, and um, uh, I understand your motivation in that way. In that you know you're using the the sort of the uh, controversial aspects to draw attention to this story, but mm-hmm. underlying the story is 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 you know how the this various people in Nigeria have helped you and helped free you. Yeah, we are all a result of um, of the circumstances and the environment we are born mm. born in, and whether we like it or not, it, it, it creates us. If even if a second Einstein is born now in Borno State in Maiduguri in Nigeria, where there's Boko Haram, no power, no electricity, flutes uh, in exchange with uh, hot seasons. Uh, he has no chance in becoming a, a famous um, a famous uh, scientist. And if you're born in a very poor environment and you have to survive, fight for survive every day, I mean, no one can blame you for not being extremely righteous and, and ethical and thinking only about long term if you are hungry, right? Uh, and um, we are we're all the same. And I just like you said, I mean, you know what's going to happen when London has electricity turned off for three days or power or there's no water for three days. I mean, it's going to be crazier uh, than Lagos in Nigeria after three days yeah. because in Lagos, at least people are used to the problems and they they, they learned how to survive. <laughs> and what? now if a, if a meteorite hits the world, none of those people from Western civilization will survive. Those people <laughs> that will survive are those living in, 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 in the savanna or in the yeah. Amazon forest, yeah. You want to you yeah. want to find your way to the nearest Maasai warrior, <laughs> or, or or get to Papua New Guinea and live with the indigenous Absolutely. people there, and you'll survive. Yeah, we're all fucked. I, I, I'll give Amish Ben forty eight hours. <laughs> he'll oh, be dead in oh, a, he'll be dead in a ditch somewhere. That's not yeah. <laughs> what was um? Just talk to us a bit about the sort of poverty levels over in, in Nigeria, what's like, what's it like on a day-to-day basis for the majority of people? I presume there are some, there are a lot of rich people as well. Is there, is yeah. there a, a middle class or is it just some very wealthy people, some dirt poor people? What's it like on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely extreme when you look at the, the differences between the rich and the poor. Oh. Uh, just to give you an example, Nigeria, close to 200 million people. Um, according to the latest research, uh, only 1% of people make more than $9,000 per year. So we're talking about 2 million people, like one small city, like Warsaw in Poland, make more than $9,000 per year. That's like, you know, $800 uh, per month, something like that. Like how much can you, can you survive for $800, like 600 pounds in London per month? And you're not even going to rent a, flat right <laughs> no. uh, so so it's extreme extreme poverty and it's getting worse and worse unfortunately um it's getting and, worse. And people are extremely young there's uh yeah. there's there's like 60 percent of sub-saharan african people are below 30 years old and uh because we're entering the fourth industrial revolution when everything gets automated and then you have still no infrastructure no cheap power no reliable power 
you can't really build any warehouses, call centers, or manufacture plants that really took India and, and China out of poverty, right? Because they right. became the, the call centers and the manufacturers of the world. You yeah. can't replicate that in, in Nigeria because you're not going to build a call center because there's no internet that works properly. And you're not going to build a, uh, a place where people, I don't know, build laptops because there's just no power. Mm. And that's the problem. And, and this, the demographics becomes your liability, not your strength, which was used to be like that in the 90s, right? Or even earlier. So that's the problem. But also at the same time, you have that 1% extremely rich people. And, and by extremely rich people, I'm talking millions of dollars stashed in cash in, the, in, in your garage or in your basement. Uh, I mean, the class is extremely wealthy to, to levels which are not, not known to any European because, because of the French Revolution in which, which century? 17th of 18th? We've killed them all, right? <laughs> but the, the, the classism still exists and, and it's living very well in Africa. And, and those people are rich to uh, levels that it, it's really hard to imagine. Like the way Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or yeah. Bill Gates live is nothing in comparison to, to how rich the, the 1% is. And to an extent they... that they, they buy themselves their streets, yeah? Like yeah. once you start meeting people in business business meetings and you see that the name on the business card <laughs> is the same as the street that the yeah. building is on, like it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's extreme. And, and, and let me just finish the middle class. It's growing, but the, the definition of a middle class had to be changed for Africa. I mean, you have to make a couple dollars per day uh, just to be defined as a middle class in Africa. Uh, and then all those big, big consulting companies like PricewaterhouseCoopers, McKinsey, they really were, were building this positive communication like middle class in Africa is expanding, is growing because that's what you need. You want the, the, the nations, the economies to grow, not only because they're making money by selling oil, but by building internal demand. But it's still so bad and still grows so slow. They actually had to kind of change the definitions to to build some positive co- communication because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. You have to say it's good to bring money, and then once you have money, it's gonna be it's gonna be better. And that self fulfilling prophecy also go, go works bad the other way, right? If if the whole communication about Africa is is run by NGOs that sponsor those ads in TV with kids with big bellies, mm. you're gonna scare off the investors. Yeah, so it's it works both ways. The um, the one percent you talk about the sort of super rich contingent um, is this like a political class or is it based on commerce? How how have they got to this position? Um, I'm, I don't want to build myself now as an expert in no in, just, in just from so, what you've just from what you've aspects, seen. But yeah, in in and again, Africa we're talking about fifty four countries, right? H- yeah. Hundreds of ethnic groups, like. The differences between different ethnic groups in Nigeria are bigger than the differences between East and West of Europe. We just have to remember that, how, how complex that is, that is a, as a continent. We all treat it as one country sometimes in the most extreme mm. way. But if I have to generalize in a way, I guess you could say that power in politics always go, goes hand in hand with money. Whether this is, if you're in politics, you're going to have power, you're going you're gonna to become rich, or whether this is, well, you've done very well for yourself in different ways, and now people want you to also be the leader. It's yeah. like all in one. It's 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 not really uh, uh, division, if this is the word. No, so the, the lines are blurred yeah. between politics and commer- yeah, commercial. Yeah, I mean success. the politicians are the richest people in uh, in Nigeria in every other country, 
whether this is a correlation of causation and which way that causation goes uh, probably is not that clear but it's a fact that the uh, the, the the governors and the ministers and I, they're all billionaires i guess the senior officials are unofficially millionaires that's for sure and nigeria is a a, a resource rich country as far as uh, mm-hmm. natural resources go, isn't it? Which is pr- presumably where a lot of this wealth is, comes from. It's the people's oh, wealth. Yeah, it's, like... yeah, it's uh, I think it's number seven in terms of oil resources. And uh, I guess any African country is, is rich in some sort of resources. And if you still, again, try to generalize and simplify this thing yeah. uh, in a reductionist way, uh, the, the resources are more a curse than a, than a blessing, right? I think which country is that there are some countries in Africa which actually have little resources. They're doing relatively better than other countries with way more resources. Because mm-hmm. it's like winning a lottery ticket, right? You have mm-hmm. no idea how to spend that money. Um, Nigeria <laughs> used to be a, a great exporter of peanuts, I think, and uh, uh, palm oil and a couple of other things. And, um, and they, they were really becoming a powerful diversified revenue streams economy mm. and then i think in the 70s or in the 60s uh oil was discovered and no one cared about growing some plants and exporting them because you can make so much easy money mm. from oil you just get a plot of land from the government then you go to exxon mobile they're going to pay you rent 10 years up front and then they're going to be paying just for being able to extract them oil there and so why why bother you know? mm. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk in, in various news outlets and different media sources about the role that China is playing in Africa at the moment as far as natural resources go. What's mm-hmm. your, have you have you looked into this or have you a take on this or how it works? What's going on? Yeah, definitely China is is uh, is, is taking over Africa. That that's how I see it. Yeah. And there are a couple of aspects here. First of all, the fact that there's this big power that is fighting for influence in Africa hand in hand with the West, because you wouldn't say that Russia has been a significant power that was trying to do something, especially after Cold War. So because the second power entered, it really gave an edge for African leaders because they could play now the West and China, right? Who's going to give you more and so on. African leaders are very smart about that. Then you have China that has a very different approach to, to doing business, doing deals with uh, with Africa on one side, they're giving you money without even asking. Um, I'm not okay, not giving you money. West would West would give you a lot of aid, but they would be like 100,000 rules, like you can't be corrupt, you can't you know <laughs> steal that money and so on. And obviously, this would not always work. I mean, there was always corruption anyway. And um, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, aid has been uh, West has been helping with aid. For decades to Africa, there's been trillions of dollars sent, and it's just not, not not working. Aid is not designed to take countries out of poverty. Aid is supposed to help you when there was a war or an earthquake, not structural problems. Yeah, uh, China doesn't care about that. They're coming, they're building roads, infrastructure because they know this is what you need to build economy. Uh, so they're giving people increasing the quality of life. No one's going to care about censorship if your kid was yesterday. Uh, walking to school 10 kilometers every day and now he, he gets a bus, right? No one cares about censorship. The trade-off is clear. Uh, but then China is installing their own companies there because they're not hiring African companies to build that highways yeah, and, and airports. They're bringing their own stuff 
and they're bringing their own engineers and there's no transfer of know-how. Uh, they, they may yeah. be going to hire local people for the simplest jobs. So they're bringing their own companies. They give big loans so the African governments can spend that money to build highway, but using a, a Chinese company. And that's how they install them. So the Chinese China, Chinese yeah. government lends the African country the money. To, in, a, to, in a very simplified way. It's, it, yeah. it, of course, it, it's way more, way more complicated than this, yeah. but this is a big part of it. And, and then, obviously, there are loans which have certain terms to it. Mm. And try not to pay that loan. Now, everyone's saying that. So those people who are for China, they say China is a, like a non, non-active partner. You know, they don't send their troops there. They don't build military bases. I mean, give them a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some, some government stops paying the loan. They're going to take over the harbor or an airport. I think it already happened in Sri Lanka or in, 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 uh, that knows in Africa, but it happened somewhere in, Nigeria, in Kenya. I don't remember now. And, and then you have the aspect of African leaders really looking with jealousy towards China and how it controls their population, how it censors the internet, how it just keeps, holds everyone by the balls. Uh, just, uh, just Google like recent internet shutdowns in African countries. Yeah? And, and you will see that the number of shutdowns per year is growing rapidly, uh, always around elections and so on and so on. So, um, uh, the the, the 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 Chinese model of mixing capitalism with uh, with uh, obviously minimized uh, human rights and and freedom is way more appealing for African leaders than mm. than the Western economy. Um, I, I don't know. I remember when I read when I read this, but I think there's there's a study that shows the causation between how rich a country is and how long democracy will survive until it goes bust. And obviously, if you install democracy in a country that is too poor, people will not be educated enough to understand what's happening. They won't think long-term because, again, they're thinking about their bellies here and now because they're hungry. Democracy has no chance of surviving. So um, I guess this is also somewhere, somewhat I- I- important um, here. Yeah, it's um, and not to not to just rag on the Chinese Communist Party because you know it's my opinion that they learnt most of this playbook from the United States in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. I don't know if you've Uh, read. um, I wanted to mention that. Yeah, they they did the same, right? Yeah, uh, there's a great book, um, Confessions of Economic Economic Hitman. Hitman. Yeah, John Perkins. It's a fantastic book, and it spells out the same playbook that the United States did with South America, South and Central America. Absolutely correct. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it's funny that now there are similarities in, in it. How China? It's, it seems like China took it and, and fixed the problem. <laughs> and now it's like okay, uh, I take what's good for it, Nate, and, I, and I'll do it. I'll do it, I'll do it my way. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, there's also European Union, and I think right now the West already knows that they're losing the game for influence in Africa. And whoever wins influence in Africa, I'm talking about addressable market i'm talking about all the resources huge continent that is still super empty that billion people is still nothing when you compare to how big the continent really is um the west is aware of how powerful china has become and they they know they're running out of time the problem is the west is now busy with internal problems too much to to be able to uh to really focus on it properly yeah so do you think we've missed the boat then if we talk about sort of like western europe in America, in terms of influence there now? Mm. 
I think that we are very, very close to missing the boat. Right. Okay. Oh, on that bombshell. <laughs> yeah. We've done an hour already. But listen, yeah. no one's going to care because looking at the events in 2020, aliens going to land by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, mm-hmm. um, it's been fascinating. Is there anything that you need to tell us? Or, uh, you know, do you want to talk about what you're doing now? You're going to be working on a new book. Are you going back uh, to Africa? What's happening? I hope I won't have enough stories to tell about in my book because I won't survive <laughs> the next, next book. Uh, I hope it will be way more boring if I ever write it. Um, You're hoping so, for a nice, quiet life now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Much, much more peaceful. Um, so uh, right now, obviously, I still am very heavily involved in, in the region because uh, e-commerce in Africa has always been my big bet, and it still is. I still have an, a performance a marketing agency. We, we work with many uh, African brands, but that's boring. I don't want to tell you about that. Uh, what's, I think, worth mentioning is that all the proceeds from the book that I wrote, uh, as well as all my speaking engagements, uh, go to a charity which I launched called Maya Foundation. So if anyone is interested, uh, go to Chasing Black Unicorns, which is the title of the book, .com, as the easiest way to remember. And there's everything about the book, about the charity, and about myself. So if you don't like the book, at least you did something good for the charity. And it works well as a table supporter, right? Or a furniture supporter. <laughs> That's um, brilliant. That's brilliant that you're doing that, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's that charity's uh, focus? Uh, do you have five minutes? Because it's a story. <laughs> yeah, close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also very close to my heart. So um, I wanted to put money into charity from the book, uh, because I didn't want to be accused for making money out of this whole case. Because as you know, it's already a delicate one, right? Yeah. Um, so I never thought I'm going to open a charity. Uh, I wanted to just find a charity and, and give the money to, uh, to to any charity. And and I approached this problem like I always do in business, like a potential investor or a company builder. Like, show me your P&L. Show me your sustainable effect on the environment that you're doing. And oh my God, the rabbit hole I got myself into. Like, the way charities are working in the world, I'm like, I'm really not the fan of what they do mm. um so i ended up saying well maybe the world needs more smaller charities mine is going to be extremely small because it's only my money my savings plus some money from the book but maybe it's good maybe you you don't want to spend time finding a charity model that will fix all the problems maybe we just need more people doing something on their own so i was like okay let me do it then um i figured i am extremely lucky with where i was born how my life went so I, I asked myself a question. So who is more screwed in life by the way they were born uh, and where they were born? And I didn't need to look far, right? I already mentioned the Maiduguri city where there's Boko Haram, there's, there's, there's really radical Islam and uh, there's a very bad environment in terms of infrastructure and so on. If you're a girl being born there, there's a high chance you're going to end up being uneducated and you're going to turn to be a slave for the Boko Haram people that will... That will uh, kidnap you because it's a it, there was a big case chibok girls was a hashtag they, they kidnapped like 200 girls and they're kidnapping yeah. many many dozens of girls every year and so we found this orphanage school there which uh, has a couple of hundred kids but mainly girls orphans girls so we figured let's hope those girls because if you're an orphan girl in this particular region your chances of becoming someone successful in life with a happy life are close to zero. <laughs> like you, you check all the boxes in terms of how screwed you can be in life. So we figured we decided to help them. Uh, we started with the basics because the school didn't even have a building. They had like one shack 
and the kids were being taught sitting on the ground. So we started with building walls and and and, and a roof, and then we built toilet, and now we're putting water connection there. The next step will be electricity. Then we're gonna buy some laptops, books, and so on and so on. And once the school works, we're gonna look at those girls who are the best in mathematics or in science, and then we're gonna give them some scholarships to go to a better, you know, primary school, uh, high school, then maybe a university. Assuming we're going to survive, we're going to have money for that. But we decided that instead of helping many people at once, something that is shiny and you can put it on social media, like, look, we just sponsored 100 meals. We just sent them laptops. No, we're going to invest in work that is not really visible. The results are not visible for many years. But if hopefully in 10 years from now, there will be two or three or even one girl, I'm still going to be happy, that went through the whole scholarship program, ended up becoming a financially independent person. She became a accountant or a web developer and then hopefully she will be so appreciative she will go back to her region and maybe do something on her own so yeah i, I hope i count on that triple effect uh, and that's so that's super cool that's what we do uh, and so you can read read uh, about maya foundation uh, you either go to mayas-foundation.com or you just go to chasingblackunicorns.com and there's also it's the same website it just redirects you we'll put all the links in the episode notes so yeah, definitely Thank you so much that for out. allowing me to share it. Yeah, excellent. And it's not like I'm so uh, so like uh, righteous in, in in coming up with this. Like my girlfriend told me, like you need to help women because once you help women, you're gonna make sure that you know. But apparently, it's way way better to help women than to help men <laughs> because <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, more, <laughs> uh, there's there's actually a very very smart logic behind it in terms of. Um, how to help in a most sustainable way. Like what gives you the most bang for your buck? Because there are many ways that you can help that have no sustainable effect, which is still great, but you want to maximize the potential benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Cost benefit analysis. Excellent. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. Um, I'll be ordering the, the book as soon as we're finished here. I think everyone listening should as well, because that's a great cause. And, yeah. Um, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. and, and you get a book. Yeah. And you get a book mm-hmm. as well. Come on. If you want a hard copy, yeah, you can. It burns very fast, very well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, audiobook is cool. Um, uh, people say that they actually, there are people who read first the hard copy, then the audiobook. They prefer the audiobook version. Uh, you can get it on Audible or whatever you prefer. Oh, cool. Uh, so, yeah. Cool. Who's, uh, is it Charles Dance who's narrating or uh, are you doing it? Did you do it yourself, Marek? The audio oh no, I'm not an actor. Plus, I have uh, <laughs> one of my nose nostrils are is blocked, so I, I shouldn't be. Uh, you can kill your book if authors shouldn't shouldn't write their, read their books. So I have a I have a professional. But Excellent. oh my god, I forgot his name now. He's a great <laughs> guy, but I forgot his name. Oh my god, I don't have a name name. Oh dear, oh, don't worry about it. We'll we'll edit that. We'll, we'll fix that. Uh, yeah, edit, we'll yeah. edit that. We'll keep it in now. <laughs> right. Well, it's been brilliant. Um, all the links will be in the description. So check out uh, Marek's website and the charity and everything else. Um, thanks for your time, Marek. Just hold on the line for us while we play ourselves out. Yeah. And uh, cheers. Thank thanks. you so much for everything. Brilliant. It's been fascinating. Catch you on the yeah. flip side. Right then, you fat cunt. Let's carry on. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with Marek Zimslovsky. That was great. Yeah, our new African correspondent. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, a... Africa, I should say, not African. Oh, African correspondent based in Madrid. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or he's in Madrid. I think he... I think he's probably like an international man of mystery. I think he probably lives yeah. just all over. He just just yeah, goes from definitely. city to city. I imagine. I imagine he's one of these people. Hotel. Yeah, who does um, <laughs> yeah, the exit? Yeah, yeah, that's one. Yeah, yeah what lockdown? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, I thought it was a, a good, uh, interesting story, and I, I certainly learnt a lot. Learnt a lot about Nigeria and and the the situation there, how things work, and um, yes, you know that's good. That's good. I think it's good when you come away learning something. Mm-hmm. All right. That's what I'm here for. So I think Ben's just doing his emails now. Yeah, he's clicking. And clicking no, look, I'm all right. He's, no he's, emails. He's checking no, his. Saying. He's checking his weight loss selfies. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing it. Just, yeah. He was just clicking between before and after. Uh, fat cunt. No fat cunt. Fat cunt. Not yeah. fat cunt. <laughs> That's pretty much how it goes. There's, there's an interim. I've got three so far. Right, so check out Marit's website and yes. uh, the charity and buy the book. Anyway, let's get on with the show, man. Housekeeping. 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 It's body popping. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fucking body popping. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Support the show. Become a producer. Yeah. Go to the armsinquisition.com, click on the how, to produ- how do I become a producer tab to find out. There's loads of ways. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes, five-star review. Five, um, only five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great review. Yeah. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want to see how the sausage is made. Um, we're getting a lot, quite a lot more. Uh, we've tripled the amount of subscribers in a year. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what happens when you upload videos. <laughs> okay. uh, now we know. Uh, how else can you become a producer? You can send us uh, video clips, news articles, yeah. uh, sound bites. Correct uh, us. Do you remember when people used to correct us? Yeah, corrections. If we have any, oh, that was a long time ago. If we've made yeah. any errors, which is we've not made highly <laughs> unlikely. I don't think we've made an error for nine months. No, obviously not, because we haven't had any corrections in, have we? So. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, you can email us at email us at the armistice at gmail gmail dot com. Uh, you can send us memes for Instagram. We've had some good memes. Uh, you can buy some merch from the Amish loot chest. Yeah, you know, get pretty, your pretty nifty looking hoodies in there. Yes, yeah, yeah, selling like hotcakes. The hoodies we've sold, we've sold hoodies this week. Um, how Have else? We? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really? yeah. They've only been on sale a week. Sales, yeah. cash money. Uh, um, wow. Probably, I think we've probably covered maybe a month's worth of hosting costs <laughs> so far. It's all right. You know, every little helps. Or you can just send us a good old-fashioned PayPal donation via the PayPal button on the website. Yeah, that's but that's just the kind of free money that we like. Yeah, toss us a fucking coin, man. Toss a coin to your witcher, old valley of plenty. I think you're hitting, hitting the point, Phil. That... It really bothers me. Because I have an issue in this respect. I have an issue. I do have an issue. We need some more, we need some more donations. I have an issue in that respect, for fuck's yeah. sake. You know, um, what else do we do, housekeeping-wise? 
Producers. Fucking hell, we need to thank the producers for episode 158. So, we have Joe Smith. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I forgot something. All right. Oh, my God. Did I remember to do that? No. Oh. Live fuck-ups. <laughs> Oh god, yeah! I got a I got a message from producer Joe. Producer Joe was a jonesing for uh, some current grape action. I should have pulled oh. up the message. Oh. Where, where? Please, please tell me where I can find the full clip of the <laughs> Irish rugby guy. Of the Irish rugby guy. So, Joe, your wish is my command. This is just for you. Raisins and sultanas are both dried forms of what fruit? Carrots. Carrots, grape, carrots, grape, carrots, grape. John Humphreys, savage. Carrots, grape, 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 grape. He gets an R. He gets an R roll in there. Carrots, grape. That's what you're supposed to say. It's supposed to say R. That's the donkey's years of radio, that isn't it? Today program. Carrots, grape. That's just for you, Joe. Yeah. So mastermind. (laughs) He was was celebrity mastermind. He was on. Uh, Yeah. So I need to thank the producers, Donna. Episode one five eight. We have. It's a good list. Uh, DCI Shanks, Ami the Artist, Conjuring Over Coffee, Gav Scott, literally Shane Davies. Tamborista 2020, Luke Perry, Nomi Noznodge, Panhead, Chardy, and Giz Bane. They're just so amazing nice. in their love. They are. Yeah. 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 So amazing. Amazing. They are. <laughs> Literally our best mates. Literally. The best mate. <laughs> oh dear. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. The dwarf, the currants, the grape, the cunt, the communist, the homophobe, the misogynist, the cripple, and the mother of Ronnie Pickering from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for your support this week. We've had loads of good stuff sent us. And uh, keep it up. Keep it up for 159. Come in next week. Got Ben there. Yeah, and check out the merch. Every (laughs) week. Check out the merch. Mm. So, I think that's... God, God, it's dragging on that housekeeping bed. So, I think we should uh, move on because I've got a whole rake of quite interesting COVID news. Come in. (laughs) Right, all right. COVID-19 news. Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mostly. More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. Two million people have to die. This is such a crock of shit. This is Sonny Pickering! Who the fuck's that? Yeah, me! Yeah, loads of COVID news. Um, it's official. 
the UK is officially in lockdown two. We're going lockdown two because of Wuhan flu. Infection rates are higher. We're going lockdown two. We're scared of Kung flu. Boris is freaking lying. Thanks, sir. Thanks, DC. The best bit of that is you sing along, Phil, bagging mouth. You're like a, a, an 80s wedding DJ <laughs> working, the, working the machine. I think that was the most unwoke theme tune you've done so far. How's it unwoke? Absolutely. It's just, you know. Fully asleep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. REM. It's sleep. got Wuhan flu in there for a start. Oh, fuck it. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> I had a story from, uh, I've got a couple of little things to go uh, to get through before we get onto the meat of the COVID news, but we had a story sent from us uh, by, I think it was Amy, Amy, uh, producer Amy from Insta, and it's a report from that was on NPR um, the other day about failures at the outset of the pandemic. This election week, the U.S. surpassed 100,000 cases per day for the first time. And today we have more of the story of how we got here. An NPR investigation has revealed news of a failure of coronavirus testing. Early in the pandemic, in February, a test designed by the Centers for Disease Control did not work which set back U.S. efforts. Now an internal investigation from the CDC obtained by NPR shows the microbiologists who produced that test knew it was flawed and sent it to the nation's labs anyway. Here's NPR's Dina Temple-Raston. The COVID tests arrived in New York City on a Friday in early February when there were just a handful of confirmed cases in the United States. It was a little box with a few little tiny screw cap test tubes in it. That's Jennifer Rakeman. She's the director and assistant commissioner of the New York City Public Health Laboratory. And she was one of the first people to learn that the COVID-19 test the CDC sent to labs around the country actually didn't work. It became clear as soon as her lab technicians tried to verify the test. Well, the- <coughs> so this is New York. Do you remember? That was the epicenter at mm. the, the outbreak where they sent the, uh, the naval ship. Yeah. And uh, you had Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, ventilators, we need ventilators, ventilators to kill yeah. people with. And, 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 uh, yeah, they fucked up at the beginning, clip two. It became clear as soon as her lab technicians tried to verify the test. Well, the emails from the lab staff were saying something looks not quite right, call us. What jumped out at them? When the lab ran specimens that were supposed to be negative, the test seemed to indicate those samples contained a low level of the coronavirus. It was truly an oh crap moment. Like, what are we going to do now? Everybody is waiting for us all over the city to have this test online. Everybody was holding on to this moment that we were going to have a test and now we don't have it. And they wouldn't have it, it turns out, until nearly a month later in March which meant public health officials were hobbled from the earliest days of the pandemic. Health officials across the country reporting a shortage of tests despite promises from the federal government. This comes amid growing criticism that a delay in testing may have compromised the nation's ability to detect cases. The CDC lab appeared to have failed in a spectacular way. The, uh, the thing that interests me the most about this story is that NPR chose to release it Immediately after the election. Mm. 
So how long were they using this test well? Because if, <coughs> if they checked it, they would have run their sort of QC, QA on it, making sure, run some controls. And it sounds like they've they've run a negative control and it's it's failed essentially. So you've nothing, you've no baseline to, to compare your yeah. actual uh, assay samples to. They just put it out anyway. Okay. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> because you know we, we need the test. <laughs> yeah. We only have a handful of cases. <clears throat> there was so much pressure, wasn't there, yeah. at the beginning about testing, testing, testing. We need to test, 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 oh. test that motherfucker. Test till you're blue in the face. And uh, well, this and that's why the PCR the PCR thing got pushed, didn't it? Even though that has like a, um, oh. a false negative, false positive right as well doesn't it designed to be a diagnostic test yeah and it's not fit for purpose and that's what i remember a story right when that was being rolled out saying that it shouldn't be used for this Mm. yeah good segue of that because um carl hennigan professor carl hennigan for the (coughs) center of everyday's evidence-based medicine was on talk radio this week and he said something i had a bit of an epiphany do you remember earlier in the pandemic when COVID was an irrecoverable disease? Pandemic? What did I say? Like you said pandemic. You said a pandemic. I'm, I'm mixing up epidemic and pandemic. Yeah, right. I thought that was a, a, <laughs> one that's twice as bad. Do you remember when, uh, so anyone who'd had a COVID test ever, when once they died, they went down as a COVID death. Yeah. And the... <clears throat> The way they got around it was they reclassified it so that you had to have had a COVID positive test within 28 days. Mm. And overnight, that knocked 10% off the mortality figures, about four, four and a half thousand, something like that. Yeah. One swipe of a, a one keystroke. Yes. Anyway, um, Carl Hennigan, I was just sort of half listening to this and this sort of uh, made my ears prick up. So what the test does is it picks up a very small fragment of the RNA, about 20 base pairs out of a huge load of genes. One of the key issues about that fragment is you can shed that fragment when you're infectious, but you can continue to shed it when actually the infection has passed. And in fact, people can shed it for up to 90 days. If you look at them, young young students who were in Italy, who were there for 40 days, they were shedding viral RNA. One of- 90 days. So here's a scenario for you. You pick up um, COVID in August. 90 days later, you still have traces of the virus in you. You go into hospital for a heart valve operation. You test positive for COVID because it's with, you know, it's 90 days later in the, in the PCR at 45 cycles is picking up fragments and then something goes wrong on the operating table and uh, you die covid death mm-hmm. in fact it's not 90 days it's 90 days plus 28 days so it's four months potentially now, obviously there's going to be some variation natural variation in how long different people shed the virus for mm-hmm. but if if the, mm-hmm. if the if the pcr test can pick you up 90 days after you pick up the virus and then we're classing COVID deaths 28 days after a positive test, that's a potential for 118 days after infection to be noted down as a COVID death, which I thought was interesting. It would be, do you think it would be better to class COVID deaths as someone who's 
had a positive COVID test and then died of pneumonia, for instance. Or respiratory issues. Yeah. All right, that might skew your flu figures. But this is already also are. skewing your road traffic accident figures and your, yeah. you know, falling off a ladder figures and things like that. Yeah, the the this whole thing is the way that the COVID deaths are recorded is such a blunt instrument. There's no mm. finesse there. Um, no, which is why people have to say died with COVID and then you yeah. have to have that died of any cause within 28 days of a positive COVID test. And it complicates things because it seems like... 80-90%, maybe more, of the, of the people who die with COVID also have serious comorbidities. Mm-hmm. And then it's what role does that play? I mean, it's something a, a coroner... Um, oh, that reminds me. I had some uh, some intel from an anonymous producer Ooh. this week Ooh. regarding this exact subject. I'm going to have to... Uh, just nip into this, and here we are. Uh, inside sources say that the NHS gets a thousand pounds sterling for every coronavirus death recorded. There was a similar story in the states about doctors declaring COVID deaths and getting money for it. I'm not sure. Sh- I thought it was debunked that's cases and it went up if they were ventilated as well right that's i've heard doctors say that who work in the u.s that they get a check yeah if a covid diagnosis is made and then they get a bigger check if that patient is ventilated thirty thousand dollars i think if they're ventilated uh this says a friend we was, might have to fact check that <laughs> well i'm hearing but, from a doctor who works in the health service there from his own mouth i've seen it with my own eyes Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Maybe he's lying. Anyway, from the producer, a friend was told by their doctor when their dad passed away to make sure that it wasn't recorded as a COVID death as he was tested tested and came back negative. The reason they were told by the doctor was because the NHS get £1,000 per COVID death recorded. From the government, presumably. So, interesting data point. It's a it's a very reliable source. I'll tell you the source when we're off air because you got to protect your sources. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so moving on to the meat of the COVID news, um, the Fat Emperor, aka aka Ivor Cummins, released a video yesterday. This is hot off the press, and he was talking to Nick Hudson, who's a South African chap from Panda which is Pandemics Data and Analytics. Um, And it's like a one-hour video that sort of completely disemboweled the whole COVID narrative. I could have took 20 clips. I ended up marking down 10 and then had to whittle that down to six. I think I got it down to because there was just so much in it. It was like that Mike Eden interview. Mm. It was just so much information in it. Um, So we'll start with uh, clip one. And funnily enough, this is talking about false positives, which we've mentioned before. People repeatedly ask me this. Stop doing emails, Ben. (laughs) How can you say that there are lots of false positives (laughs) if the false positive rate on the test is only 1% or 2% or whatever? 
And I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subtle thing. And I think something that people need to like just absorb a little bit and think about. If the prevalence rate has gone down, I mean, if, let's take the extreme case. Let's imagine that there's no COVID in a population. And now you go and you test at this kind of level. You launch millions of tests upon the population. Okay. Now, given that nobody's infected, okay, any test that comes back is going to be a positive test. How do you get to tens of thousands of cases? Well, test a million people with a false positive rate of 1% and you will get 10,000 positives. But if by our assumption, there are no infected people there, 100% of the test results are false positive, even though the test false positive rate is only 1%. And so people need to understand this, that a low false positive rate for a test can actually translate into the bulk of the results being false positives. And I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on right now worldwide. That's what Mike said, wasn't it? Yeah. Only Mike now, like I know him. And we don't even know what the false positive rate is. Some people are saying 1%. The truth is they don't know. Um, he was he, he he talked about that Mike Eden, Dr. Mike Eden, talks about get, it took him ages of campaigning to get it out of Matt Hancock, and he said it was 0.8%. Yeah, how sure are they, though? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not very sure. No. Uh, they're, they're launching a campaign, actually, this week. Uh, they've got the army in in Liverpool, aren't they? They're testing 50,000. The whole city. No, it's the whole city, isn't it? It's a half a million. Oh, I thought they were trying to do 50,000. Maybe that was no, just right, this weekend. Yeah. And they've got to ramp it up. And they've got... So the so next 500, sorry, then. There would be false positives. <sighs> Who knows? Who knows? And they've they've got three more cities earmarked, but they've not named them yet. Mm. Probably one in Yorkshire, maybe one <clears> in the northeast, <throat> maybe another one. In the false negatives are a worse problem than false positives. Yeah, no. as in much worse. Because if you yeah. are told you're negative and you go off on your merry way to your illegal rave, <laughs> then um, you know you're going to infect others, not knowing. Mm. Well, you know the potential to infect others is there. The problem yeah, thing is, whereas you think you're, you've got a clean bill of health, who's doing all the tests as well? Have you have you had a test yet? No, no. So you do it yourself more often than not. <clears throat> so you know, well, I'm not medically trained to administer a diagnostic test. <laughs> well, you don't do the actual testing, but you you scrape <laughs> your own you scrape your own tonsils and you shove it up your nose. Um. So you know, this, the, are people doing that right? That bit right? That's your thing, All right, Ben? The whole uh, the testing is the is the crux of the problem with with what we have mm. the, the mass testing. You shouldn't you shouldn't be testing people who aren't sick. The virus is already endemic. Mm. We're not going to eradicate it through mass testing. We're kidding ourselves, especially with a, with any kind of false positive rate. It's not Maybe it's it's like um, you know. On the uh, on Fight Club, Tyler Durden talks about um, putting going into the brace position. Um, it's basically like a, a comfort blanket; it doesn't actually do anything. Oh, like the face masks. Yeah, <laughs> but like testing it I, makes people feel better I, that I we're doing all this about... testing. 
makes people feel safer that we're doing safer that we're doing all this testing. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Sorry, Ben. I, I was going to say, I've heard that that brace position thing on aircraft is um, so your neck breaks yeah. rapidly. Um, yeah. So you're not, you know, floundering around on fire <laughs> down the aisle. Uh, often, I think but, it was... I don't know. That might not be true. <laughs> I think it was last week when we were talking about coronavirus, Ben, you were asking about, you know, who benefits and... You know what's the underlying? Mm. Why why is this happening? And uh, we we have got an opinion here. Why? Yeah, I can only process it as a as a confluence of incentives. Again, Michael Eden's way of looking at it, which I think is correct. Um, you've got people who are making money, and they're going to carry on trying to do that out of this lunatic testing asylum. You've got people who are too far gone. They've committed too much to the doctrine of lockdown, the voodoo of lockdown, the voodoo of the mask. And it's hard for them to stand but down. And then you've got people with delusions of grandeur who want to save the world from the deadly virus, you know, um, and who believe that they're going to do it with their vaccine. Who could he be talking about there? The magic vaccine. <laughs> um, even though we've never had a really successful RNA vaccine. Um, and a safe one, an efficacious one that you can show is safe and efficacious is years off, you know. Um, and then you've got, uh, I think, ineptitude as another part of the story. People who have, they're not, they're not that bright. They haven't really spent enough time studying the data and the information to form their views. They're forming their views out of fear. And they go to sort of layman intuition, know that you've got to be better off if you put a bit of cloth in front of your face and you've got to be better off if you stop visiting people. They're not, they just go for that sort of rudimentary uh, kind of first thing that you can grab at something that computes in a very simplistic kind of way. And then they, in the, in the midst of all the fear, they become adherents to this new religion, you know? And so I think they're sincere a lot of the time, but they're just not very clever, you know? And, and so you've got multiple commercial, political, uh, accident of history, psychological, fear-driven drivers of this thing that, that, that lead to the maintenance of essentially a voodoo science. Yeah, that's Mike. Well, sounds like Mike Eden, doesn't it? That's what yeah. he says. He's not very... He left, he left one aspect out, and that's the media. Hmm. The me- yeah. media benefits greatly from all this. They fucking love it. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave us out of that equation because we're alternate media. But No, yeah, we're cool. They, uh, they fucking love talking about coronavirus. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting take. Yeah, similar, like I said, similar to uh, Eden's take on it. Uh, let's move on to the question of immunity. Mm. You know, we've heard uh, Val- what was it? Witty and Valance talk about seven percent of the population being immune. Uh, therefore, ninety-three percent of us are still susceptible. So, let's hear about that immunity. The next point here is this idea that immunity is not long-lived; that it vanishes, and that's based on this. It, it's a true statement that antibodies wane quite quickly. But what's ignored is that's always the case. If your body maintained an antibody response for every virus in, it, in the system, you know, as we said just now, you've got viruses in you all the time, you know, you would die. 
you wouldn't be able to make it. You can't maintain. Uh, antibody response is very energetic. It's taxing on the system. So you only mount one when an infection gets out of control and the antibody response wanes. What doesn't wane and has been known about for decades is your T cell memory and B cell memory, the part of your immune system that helps it wake up and get going again if you get a serious infection down the line. And so it's completely wrong to be, and these scientists know this, this is first year immunology, it's not new. They know it, okay? But if, so they're lying when they tell you that your immunity vanishes because the antibodies are waning. That is a downright lie. Pretty uh, clear in his language there. Yeah, yep. similar to what we've heard, isn't it, from Mike again? From, from Eden. Yeah. 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 And they wonder why people don't trust the experts anymore. Yeah. When you have bizarre. chief scientific <clears throat> advisor to the government telling us 93% of you are still susceptible. Mm. And he's not an idiot. So there must be, there must be, no, there must be something behind that lie, though. So why is he doing? The it? only thing I can think of, yeah, exactly. The only thing I can think of is if you tell a population that, oh, it's you know you're going to get it again, or it's only going to last six months or or a year or whatever it is, then you can sell them a, or you can sell a nation or the health service or whatever. You can provide to them a new vaccine at different time points and suggest that they need boosting every so often to keep that, keep them strong and keep the virus away. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people will buy that because they're, they're familiar with the concepts of boosters, um, TB, BCG vaccinations that, that, you know, we all had as, as kids and, and, um, you know, a lot of other childhood vaccinations that require boosters, tetanus as well. Um, so it's not a alien concept to the 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 nation, whereas T cell and B cell memory cell immunity is an alien concept to a hell of a lot of the population who don't really need to know that mm. level of, of immunology um, knowledge. If I was being really charitable to them, you could you could say that they would give out this message that 93% of you are still susceptible to increase um, the public's compliance mm-hmm. with the measures. But I think that's been very charitable and it's still misleading yeah. the public. We're adults. Yeah. That's the key problem here. That's the problem, yeah. And I don't know who's driving who. I don't know if it's the scientists who are driving the politicians or it's the politicians who are driving, deciding on the route to take and somehow bullying the scientists. I mean, all right, if I'm Patrick Valance and Bojo comes up to me and says, right, we've run out of ideas, we need a second lockdown, provide me a presentation for a press conference in two days which justifies a second lockdown, I would fucking walk out because I know what the consequences of another lockdown are. So even if you're charitable and say they're doing it to to enhance compliance, uh, Mm. I tell you, public inquiry is going to be years off, but I can't fucking wait for it. Yeah, because I've been I've been following this shit for months now in great detail. Well, Uh, we've been just been talking about corruption in Africa, haven't we? I mean, it's it's a lot closer to home than than we think. Yep. All right, let's. uh, We've done immunity. Uh, let's move on to vaccines, which you raised. 
Which one's this? Is it clip four? Yeah. How will we know if the vaccine? How will we know if the vaccine's effective? Is a good question. Well, I can answer one question that you had there. How how will they know? It's effective on mortality and serious outcomes. And the answer is they don't care because the vaccine trials and it's been in, I think, the New York Times, even mainstream media, the criteria they've chosen for success is fewer sniffles and some kind of subjective. So if the vaccine appears to demonstrate lesser symptoms, uh, it's go and mortality is not in it and, uh, and other real world impacts. So the trial is kind of set up that if it does anything at all, uh, great, you're, you're all you're all go. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's so shit. It's funny. Yeah. And the thing is, is this is um, going to go on for years, then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean that's bad. It gets worse as far as the the vaccine studies go because then um, Nick drops this bombshell. We looked at a trial the other day where the placebo group, you know, had been set up with, uh, they were taking, they weren't taking, you know, a, a complete placebo, which has no effect. They were using another vaccine, which has a suppressive effect on viral resistance. So instead of giving you a placebo in the vaccine trials, they give you an other vaccine, which reduces your Immune, immune response to uh, so make you so to make you feel worse, basically, potentially. Um, so the you know the the whole experimental design had been rigged to demonstrate that the that the the, the vaccine itself was effective. Oh right, okay. <laughs> Fuck. Oh, so instead, instead of just putting it up against a placebo, they put it oh up against another vaccine, which limits your. Uh, your ability to fight off viruses. So it's, just, it's rigged. The trial's rigged. That one he's, he's been looking at anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, so the vaccine ain't going to be a fucking magic bullet because we don't even know if it's going to work when it comes. The game's fucking rigged. Um, and apparently this, this is standard practice for vaccines. Uh, I didn't... I had to keep the clips down, but they go on to say... Um, uh, Ivor said he's looked into loads of vaccine trials and, and this seems to be the, the common procedure. We don't generally test vaccines against placebos. So That's weird, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's they can get weird. away with that. Yeah. Okay, this is a good... Uh, this is interesting. Um, next, Ivor, the fat emperor, breaks down the cost-benefit analysis for a potential vaccine number needed to treat and cost benefit of a drug i am into that and back of the envelope for coronavirus given the age of the fatalities the qualities and just looking at the simple data for coronavirus essentially it will probably cost the vaccine 20 to 40 times more per quality adjusted life here potentially saved if it's good right than the guidelines in the UK, the NIC guidelines for the amount you spend per quality adjusted life you're saved. So just on economic terms, it's out by orders of magnitude from what we would ever consider. Just economic terms. And like, it seems no one cares. <laughs> Sorry, is he saying basically because people are so old? Because of the age profile in mortality. Yeah. So the NIC... Um, do you know, like, if a new cancer drug comes on the market, 
or yeah. a, new, a new treatment, but and it costs a hundred grand for a three months treatment. Mm. The NIC has to make a cost benefit analysis yeah. of whether that's you know all right. Nice. It's it only say say a treatment it only works in late stage cancer and there's a fifty percent chance that it'll work and it costs a hundred grand. Well, the NIC can say, well, hang on, if we put that hundred grand into screening. Mm-hmm. we're going to save more lives in the long run. That's the cost-benefit analysis decisions they have to make all the time when new uh, pharmaceuticals come on the market. So he's saying if we use the NIC standard for cost-benefit analysis, the cost of the vaccine for what we'll gain will be 20 to 40 times greater than than our guidelines would recommend mm. because of the age profile of the, of the virus. You know, we've seen in the so new guidelines. Well, we saw from the Scotland nice from the nice yeah. the Scot the Scotland data. The average death of coronavirus in men and women is older than average life expectancy. Hmm. Right? Say right, if average life expectancy for a woman in Scotland is eighty one, the average COVID death is eighty four. So bad is it? What? Well, you know, you you gain to live longer if you have COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah. Fucking Oh, I don't get it. Uh right, last clip, and this is about the lockdowns. What do we know about lockdowns? What are they good at? Killing people. Good at killing people with cancer. Estimated 30,000 over the next few years. We're good at killing people with heart disease. We're good at killing people with strokes. We're good at increasing suicides, although we won't have that data for at least 12 to 18 months because the, the after, suicides have to be investigated by coroners and there's a fucking backlog there because of the lockdown. But I'm sure when that comes out, we'll see a big, steep jump in suicides over the lockdown. Uh, mm-hmm. Mental health, obviously. It has a huge impact on lockdowns are really uh, great for increasing mental health problems. Good at increasing child abuse, uh, domestic violence. They're really good at, aren't they? Lockdowns. We know this. Um, they're good at increasing waiting times for people in the NHS. Waiting times for people who are in pain. They're good at breaking up marriages and relationships, which is always a good thing. They're good at decreasing child vaccination rates for things like polio and measles. They're good at increasing the risk of starvation across the world by approximately 150 million over the next year or so. Uh, They're good at closing businesses, making people unemployed, destroying civil liberties, removing our right to protest. You you can't protest with more than two people now in this country. Just in case you disagreed with the, you know, the the thing we're taking. Um, But it's worth it, isn't it? Because lockdowns reduce... Covid deaths, don't they? Surely, no. You, your end point, whether you like it or not, is herd immunity. Now, it, just to preface this, I had to cut this again. He says herd immunity isn't a strategy; it's an outcome, and it's the mm. only outcome. The only outcome from this situation is herd immunity, and the question is, how do you get there? Via natural herd immunity or a, va- a vaccine? It's the only way out. It's the only end point. So it's not saying that we should just let the virus rip, like the Guardian <laughs> the, says. Uh, the end of humanity is, uh, just to uh, play devil's advocate, the end of all life as we know it is the other end point where the virus never, you never reach any sort of immunity and it skips across all species on the planet and uh, and kills everything. 
So total uh, carbon death. Well, that's a bad thing for a <laughs> Just virus. Just to cheer everyone up. <laughs> yeah, it is. Cuss this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and what you want to be doing, what your strategy ought to be oriented around doing is getting to herd immunity whilst infecting the smallest possible number of vulnerable people. And you do that by changing the relative mobility. This is important. You've got to listen hard to this because this is counterintuitive, but it makes sense and they have papers to back this up. Of vulnerable people. You bring down their mobility without reducing the the mobility of the non-vulnerable people. And what generalized lockdowns, general lockdowns do is exactly the opposite because your vulnerable people are less mobile to start with. So when you start putting the brakes on the kids and the young adults and so on, you, you massively reduce their mobility. And so the relative mobility of the older and more vulnerable people, the at-risk people, actually goes up. And that for me, is a very compelling explanation for why you get this very high mortality in countries like Peru, who have had brutal and extended lockdowns, and the very high age-based mortality that we've experienced in South Africa um, with our 220-odd day lockdown. It's actually counterproductive. So it's it's not an easy concept to explain, but it's talking about the relative mobility between your susceptible cohort and your not susceptible cohort this virus's biggest weakness is that we know who it kills to to a massive degree and it the older you are the the your card is marked and even so even if you're 80 you still have a, something like a 90 85 90 percent chance of, of being fine but it's, it's saying if you if you reduce it's it's about relative mobility Older people tend to be less mobile in general. If you dramatically reduce the mobility of the younger people, it, the relative mobility of the vulnerable class goes up. So you end up, over the long term, you end up killing more people of COVID by locking down. And you know what? This was published in the British Medical Journal back in June, July, this concept by a team peer-reviewed and we have the paper and Friedrich uh, also has a paper out now preprint same concept makes absolute sense even though it's a little counterintuitive and it agrees with the real world data and predictions unlike imperial college junk so here we have it that they will actually serve to maximize COVID-19 deaths over the long term and add on an enormously bigger number of excess deaths by all the other lockdown impacts. And they destroy society, destroy freedoms, ruin the economy, cause massive child poverty and starvation over time in other areas of the world. Yada, yada, yada. So the science says that this is the most catastrophic own goal in human history in public health interventions And the irony, the irony is the West chose to drop all of what we knew and copy China. Isn't that the irony as the initial spark for this madness? Yeah, the the biggest lockdown fanatics 
not just with respect to coronavirus, but yeah. with respect to Uyghurs and with respect to Hong Kongers, you know, they show it all the time. That's what they do for fun. They lock down, you know, you don't copy people like that. Ever. But. Dead air. Speechless. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, it's true. But I think we covered it quite a while ago, didn't we? That it wasn't necessarily that we were following. It was Malin, wasn't it? We weren't necessarily following the science. We were copying what other people were doing. Political group thing. Yeah. 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 It's crazy, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't look Sweden. Look at oh, Sweden's death numbers are on the floor, man. I mean, it's going to pick up because we're going into the autumn, but... They're not having the same spike that we we are. And you'll notice that our spikes are happening, like, not in London, which got hit hard the first time. Yeah, that's it's what Mike said. He thinks it's... Um, regional. They ha- yeah, they've got herd immunity now in London. Maybe. Basically. Maybe we don't know. Mm. It'll all come out in the wash, eventually. Mm. So, it's um, taking forever, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Give it five years. <laughs> uh, shall we move yeah. on to happier things? Yeah. Uh, I believe there was, there was another big story, wasn't there, this week? can't remember now, wasn't there? Was it a lot uh, so about an election, was it? Something? Oh, that's right, yeah. We had an election in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, Biden seems to have... Uh... Seems to have won Sleepy Joe. <laughs> well <laughs> done, Sleepy Joe. It's great, isn't it? So mm. we're gonna have. So I, I hope he lives long enough to give us plenty of good material. <laughs> I'm and, pretty sure that he will. And sound bites. There's been uh, accusations from the orange man of voter fraud. Yeah, voter fraud conspiracies. I wonder where they would get that idea from. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. <laughs> what oh, the fuck? I feel sorry for him now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He's just, he's the most he's powerful man in the like world. He's the most powerful man in the world now. Did, yeah. you, <laughs> did you see that um, press conference? There's obviously a lot of unhappy Trump supporters. Did you see that uh, press conference that got, um, what do you call it? When, At the Garden Centre. The one that got gate-crashed. No. no. Oh. I mentioned we are not prepared to give that number the now. The Biden crime family stealing the election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media is covering up. The Biden crime family stealing this election. The media is covering up. We want our freedom for the world. Give us our freedom, Joe Biden. Your Biden's covering up this election. He's stealing it. <laughs> you said Joe Biden. Wow. Oh. Where were we? What was the last question? Question was how many outstanding yet to count. Slide, no, Tomorrow no. we'll have a number to give you as far as what we received. Just like nothing happened. Where were we? It's just used to it. It's just normal. It's normal in his. It's been normal for four years. Did you see, did you see his t-shirt or his vest? He had a vest on that said "Barbecue, Beer, and Freedom." <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that guy. Yeah. Is it? Did he, did he say Joe Biden stole the election? The Biden crime family. 
okay. You know, Hunter and uh, Burisma. And... Oh, they're all the fucking same, aren't they? For God's sake. Talks about it's no different than Nigeria, man. No. You know, he's, 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 he's coked up, cracked up, fucking son <laughs> ends up on the board of some company getting, what's it, 50 grand a month and a, and a non-exec mm. an exec board member. Oh, Something bit. made me laugh. I was listening to the governor of Pennsylvania doing a speech because just after they declared that he'd won Pennsylvania Biden. And mm. yeah, he was saying, comparing the two, like Trump and Biden, and he, he said that Joe Biden had a net worth of $250,000 and that was his house. And that's it. That's all he owned, apparently. That's all the money he had in the world was $250,000. I just thought, do people actually fucking believe this shit? His fucking son's like, yeah, 600 grand a year and an executive director. He's, uh, he's been in the Senate, I think, since 1972. Exactly, yeah. Just bizarre. Um, anyway, that, that gate crasher of the press conference, Cassette Boy, jumped on it and produced this. <laughs> It's uh, it's a real earworm. I've just been humming it all day. I've been humming humming that and the and the lockdown lockdown too. <laughs> you know, because of Wuhan flu, infection rates are higher. <laughs> oh, no. I'm looking forward to it. I think I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, they're just the sound bites, man. Oh, from Biden. Do you know? I think he's. I've, he's gone all gone quiet on Trump now. There was like a lot of reportage about him um, contesting it and stuff. But they basically even even his Supreme Court. Are they saying he hasn't got a leg to stand on or something? They are. Yeah, uh, they have a press conference. They had a press conference in a garden centre. Yeah. yeah. Next to a pawn shop. Uh, an adult bookstore, rather. And what did it say? Well, I I think someone messed up because uh, this garden centre was called Pennsylvania Four Seasons Landscaping mm. or something. And uh, there's obviously the Four Seasons Hotel as well. But um, with hilarious consequences because uh, you've got your man, uh, Rudy... Giuliani up on stage, um, just kind of outside this garden centre in the middle of the street. With about yep. six people behind him. Have they conceded uh, though? No, no. I think yeah. I, right. Okay. That's when he got told that that, that Trump had lost. Uh, Biden had won, and right. um, and he just said, "No, that's that's rubbish." Okay. But tr- Trump is like a petulant child. I can't remember who said it, but some whoever said this week. <laughs> Uh, there was a, you might already have it, Phil, but about him putting his big boy pants on and uh, you know shaking Biden's hand or whatever and then walking out. But it's I don't know. I it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Uh, what is it? Ninety days till inauguration. Mm. A lot of damage you can do in those ninety days. Um, the other thing as well is apparently all the sort of right. Wing media is starting to turn, I believe, as well. I believe Fox News has even run a couple of things saying she kind of walk away. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens over the next a week's a long time in politics. Mm. It's not unusual for things to drag out like this, though, especially in no. a tight race. 
And, mm. you know, we're still waiting on states to <laughs> give yeah, us the results, man. It's just yeah. a fucking weird way of doing an election. Uh, no. Why does it take so long? I've no idea. It's built in, I think. The suspense is built in in certain um, battleground states, they call them, don't they? Yeah. And they'll, they'll wait for other states to, uh, to you know, release their second-to-last batch of votes. And then it's, it's weird. It's called by different media organisations. Mm. I think that the states actually only declare the... The actual official certificates of of voting. I think it's around the eighth of December or something. I read today. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, is it is a bit of a weird way of doing things. Trump mm-hmm. just needs to chill out and go to go to San Francisco and check out the gay bathhouses. And San Francisco is all about, well, you know, gay, gay, gay bathhouses and every. It's all about round the clock sex. It's all. Come on, man. What the fuck? <laughs> what the Come fuck? I've got a, I've got a clip here, and it's called JB. What the fuck? Tell me tell me what he's saying here. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. Jay <laughs> said, "I laid down. I laid down an effective something to to release children under pressure." I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true and international effort to pressure. True and international effort to pressure. True and international effort to pressure. True international rescue. International pressure? It's true to limb and a pressure. True and international effort to pressure. True and international to pressure. True and international effort to pressure. Don't know. What about what about this one? Pluto, I'll call Pluto's accountable. <laughs> Pluto, I'll call Pluto's accountable. Yeah, that's Senator Clue Ralph Fell Fruit from Virginia. Is it when his fucking dentures come out? It does sound like wobbly dentures, this one, doesn't it? Mm. Pluto, I'll call Pluto's accountable. <laughs> it's definitely when his fucking dentures come out. True and international effort to pressure. And again there. <laughs> Oh. Pluto, I'll call Pluto's accountable. <laughs> don't, don't ask him about his old butt buddy. Neil Smith, an old butt buddy. Are you here, Neil? <laughs> Neil, I miss you, man. Don't ask him about his old butt buddy. Okay, I lost that. It's all about gay bathhouses. <sighs> oh, give him a break. Give me a little break here. Yeah. Well, hopefully Corn Pop's going to save us. Corn Pop was a bad dude. <laughs> and he ran a bunch of bad boys. It's also a host, Pluto, I'll call Pluto's accountable. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Do you know, I just think he's trying to be down with the kids, the way he talks, and make people forget he's 80 or whatever. <laughs> he's 79, I think. 77, I heard. But I thought he was 78. Yeah, oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Come on, man. Get a life. <laughs> uh, well, this is another good one. This is, uh, I think he's trying to say Obamacare here. Or better. Mark and I think it's a right for people to have bad health care. <laughs> bad health care. It's estimated that 200 million people have died. Probably by the time I finish this talk. I don't know. 77, he says he is. Ooh. 
I'll have to find oh, I thought it was 79. Oh, I guess I'm wrong. Yeah. So, I felt like I had one more oh, piece. Well, I think he seems like a nicer a nicer human being. He seems nice, doesn't he? He seems nice, so, but I like him. It's you know, he, he just knows how it all works, doesn't he? So it just fits seamlessly in. Because I'm literally a communist. Oops. Oops. <laughs> no, I don't think he's... Come on, man. I don't think he's a communist. Do you know, I'm sure I had... Um, I thought I had something else. I thought I had a blast from the past on Twitter. Oh, my God, yeah, I think I found it. Yeah, uh, there, was, there was like... I think about 10,000 miners had a, a simultaneous heart attack watching the news this week once they heard this clip. Let me just put up a tweet that uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, has just uh, put out. What? <laughs> what <Wow>, shit. <laughs> <coughs> just in case you didn't catch that. Let me just put up a tweet that uh, Margaret Thatcher has just uh, put out because... Uh... From Beyond the Grave. so badly? <laughs> Beyond the Grave and recorded from Dementia. <laughs> Who, who, talking about? <laughs> yeah, ex- good question. Who's he talking about? Who did he mean to say? Margaret Thatcher. Oh, um, she, she was she, she was prime minister. What's the name? Strong and remember, stable. Can't even remember her name. The dancing queen. Yeah. The dancing yeah. queen. Yeah. Let's yeah. find. Let's find out together. Let me just put up a tweet that uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, has just uh, put out because uh, uh, Theresa May, sorry, uh, um, saying that uh, to build consensus on climate change, whoever is elected has an immense responsibility to help tackle our planet's greatest challenge. Uh, So that's Theresa May just tweeting there. Oh, dear. All these women prime ministers look the same. (laughs) Hey, we're so progressive over here. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> all right, okay. Have we, uh, time's knocking on. Is there anything you want to add? No. No. I think we've covered it. Beyond Light comes out this week. Destiny 2 fans. <laughs> yeah. Yep, we'll be in the Crucible Wednesday night. We'll be no, back. We story mode. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah, story mode, yeah. Uh, so. We'll be back next week, though. We're doing a swap cast next week with Idiocalypse. Yeah, should uh, should be cool. We're going to okay. go deep, deep, deep down the rabbit hole, I think, uh, and uh, get uh, some find out what's happening in the states because we're clueless about American politics. Yeah, yeah. All right, should we go then? Yeah, let's. See Republicans are red, See you later. Democrats are blue. I'm Donald Trump, and I'm fucking off soon. The White House will have a new president. You know that it's true. I've been mad without precedent. It's sad because my madness is evident. And the coronavirus endorsed me for president. Trump is going to win, and you're going to lose. But that turned out to be fake news because I've left the country broken and tired. The American people told me you're fired. Wow, I've been shown the door. I'm a loser. Maybe Joe Biden has killed me. Wow, I've been shown the door. I'm a loser. Maybe Joe Biden has killed me.